Welcome to the Thrive Podcast with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. How, how does your faith kind of play into it or does it play into it? What can be done about it? When I say the church, I'm talking about uh, evangelical white Christians and the black folk who attend their churches. Hello, welcome to the Thrive Podcast with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. I'm Fred Jeff Smith, pastor of Shiloh, and I'm very happy that you chose to either view us on YouTube or listen to us on iTunes, Spotify, or Amazon. As always, we encourage your input uh, about our podcast. You can reach out to me at fredjeffsmith at gmail.com, fredjeffsmith at gmail.com. Let us know how we're doing and what things we can do that can make this podcast uh, more helpful to you. Very happy today to welcome as our guest, uh, attorney Willie Stevens, Jr., uh, who is here representing his own law firm. Mr. Stevens, thank you so much for taking the time to come and share with us thank today. Thank you all for having me. You are from Bastrop, Louisiana. Yes, Bastrop, not Bachelor. People uh, think oh, no, I, Bachelor. I know what Bachelor is. Uh, <laughs> uh, my, my stepmother was a native of Bachelor. Okay. Uh, and okay. I know what Bastrop is. So. And I don't know what Bastrop uh, <laughs> is. I just know Bastrop. It, it's, it's out uh, on your way to Alexandria. Okay. Uh, okay. Headed out that way. Uh, but tell me how you ended up uh, from Bastrop here into Baton Rouge and, and how you decided to settle here in Baton Rouge. Well, what it was is that I, I was initially in Bastrop, of course, went to Bastrop High School, um, and then I went to Northwestern in Natchitoches for mm -hmm. undergrad. And what I did is then I wanted to start a business. And so what I did is I went to Dallas. I stayed in Dallas for around six months. Um, the business that I was trying to start didn't go the way I wanted to actually go, but I was made, able to make some wonderful contacts there. Mm -hmm. However, uh, what happened was I, I decided then, okay, I'm ready to go ahead and go to law school because I didn't want it to be so long between um, undergrad and then law school, and so mm -hmm. I went on to decide to go to law school. So I applied at Southern. I got in at Southern, so I moved here, and then it's my professor well, it was, I think he was a chancellor at the time. Um, it was not Pierre, um, the one right before Pierre. Judge Pitcher? Judge Pitcher, that's the one. Okay. I had a meeting with him, and I was telling him, I was, I guess I didn't know exactly which direction to go. Should I go back home, or should I stay here? And he told me something. He said, you know, it's up to you. I, he said, but what you have to determine is whether or not you want to be a, a, a big fish in a small pond or a big uh, or a small fish in a big pond mm -hmm. and so i decided to just do both so i opened okay. up an office in monroe and i also opened up an office in baton rouge okay and i decided to stay here because my wife has her own business here so that's why we stayed here okay uh you you went to uh northwestern uh to play football or, on a football scholarship i did shouldn't say to play football but on a football <laughs> scholarship that's correct uh did you have aspirations to play professionally no i Honestly, I knew when I got a scholarship to play football in Northwestern, I didn't really want to play football anymore. Okay. Uh, that's one of those deals where you feel as if you're talented enough, but you don't have that, that extra drive to play sports mm -hmm. and be out in the heat, 100-degree heat. I, I just didn't have that, and so I decided at that time that I didn't want to continue to play football, but I stayed at school and finished and got my degree there. You got a degree in business administration? Uh, and marketing. So what was the business that uh, you initially uh, aspired to form and, <laughs> and set out to form before you decided to go to law school? Well, keep in mind that this is world's, the, I guess, the, the height of the, 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 the MySpace. I know I'm dating myself, the MySpace, and the, also the Facebook had just started when mm -hmm. they were only allowing um, college students to get on there. Okay. But I actually had my WS Music. And what that was, that was a um, that was a uh, a website that I was using that will allow people to put their um, ads on there, their music. It, it's it was more like a a, a social network, but it was on such a small level. I wasn't able to upscale the way it needed to be upscaled. So, you, well, you you're an entrepreneur now because you have your own 
practice. You hang mm -hmm. your own shingle. But what was the challenge in entrepreneurship? Uh, what, what lesson did you learn from entrepreneurship uh, that you think our listeners might be able to uh, benefit from? I, I mm -hmm. urge black people to uh, pursue entrepreneurship. I, I think it's one of the things that we have lost. Uh, we're, we're more yeah. content to take a job working for a company with benefits than we are to take the risk yeah. uh, of entrepreneurship. So what lesson uh, is there that you learned from your experience that budding entrepreneurs might be able to benefit from? Well, I think probably the most important thing that I learned was resources is not always money. Sometimes if you get in contact with the right people, they can call someone to get exactly what you need without you having to spend the money that it would have taken to get to where you were trying to go. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's important, and I think also that I learned mostly that build people, build the community, and the people that you're going to meet along the way, those are the people that's going to help you take it to the next level. So you decide to go to Southern and, yes. and, and go to law school. And uh, now you are a personal injury lawyer. Uh, uh, I was reading your bio to get myself acquainted uh, with you. Personal injuries, car accidents, commercial vehicle accidents, and 18-wheel accidents. That's listed in your mm -hmm. bio. Yes. So it's going to sound like a stupid question. Okay. I don't mean it to be a stupid question. Okay. I, I'm, I'm asking out of sincerity. Louisiana is one of the most litigious places in, in the country. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we will sue at the drop of a hat. When it comes to things like personal injury, car accidents, things of that sort, how much responsibility is borne by the state or the parish or the federal government in the maintenance of the roads upon which these accidents take place? Uh, because one of the things that, that, that I read constantly is that nationally, Louisiana's roads rank at the bottom or near Correct. the bottom. So potholes, cracks, uh, poorly maintained highways. How much does that contribute to these, these accidents. car accidents and commercial accidents? Well, as far as in my practice, I, we, we, see our, we see a good number of but I would say maybe it's only like 10 to 15 percent that we actually see in our practice. Uh, mostly what we see is the actual accidents where people are just on their cell phone or things like that. But I will Negligence. say that we've correct. And uh, but I will say that we have had cases before where uh, we've brought suit against some some municipalities um, and also against the state uh, where there was a failure to maintain bridges. Mm -hmm. And then there was no sides to the bridges. No shoulders. Correct. And then a person actually ended up going over the, the, the shoulder of the bridge or the mm -hmm. side of the bridge. And so, you know, we've had that also. But I would say most of it is more um, um, litigation that we're dealing with based on a person that's not paying attention a lot of times. There is no law. And please correct me if I'm wrong. There's no law currently in effect in Louisiana that uh, says that it's illegal to drive while using handheld devices. Is that correct? Or, or, or I haven't that seen one. Okay. Yeah. I, I wanted to be sure about <laughs> that because you know, I, I'm a native of, yeah. of Louisiana, a native of Baton Rouge, mm -hmm. and I see people doing all kinds of things correct. driving behind the wheel of a car, and it's not just cell phones. I've seen correct. people reading books, I've seen people reading the newspaper, I've seen people doing literally all kinds of things behind the wheel of a car. Why is there not a push, or if there has been a push, why has there not been any success in uh, getting legislative changes uh, that demand uh, more attention to the actual driving while a person is behind the wheel? Why, why is there no law that says, that you that 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 you can't have a cell phone in your hand while you drive in this state, well, from I your think, opinion. Well, I think a lot of it is the legislators. Is is there enough money in me pushing this particular type of legislation? Uh, if it happens to a legislator's family, 
then I can see them pushing a lot of that. But I've noticed that a lot of our laws are they're localized to the to the I guess the the special interest groups that are actually having the money to lobby some of these um, legislators. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I think it is. However, you know, of course, you know, the legislators will say something different. So you think that it, it would require, hopefully it doesn't happen, some tragedy happening to a legislator or to someone close to a legislator before these laws are changed? I think so. I think, uh, and, and that's similar to what happens, I guess, nationally. You know, when, you know, when you're dealing with certain, I guess, the, the, the drug epidemic, it became an issue when it hit a certain community. Initially, you mean when it stopped being a crime and started being a, 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 a medical a, a medical problem? Correct. Uh, yeah. Yeah, okay. and so you know, it, it, when it hits home, then they change the terminology of it, mm -hmm. and then now it becomes something that everyone needs to get uh, uh, on board to assist, versus saying that this is just localized at this group of people, and we don't necessarily care as much about that group of people. All of the activity that seems to be taking place uh, uh, with younger people where, and it's not new, they've just taken it to a different level, where they're doing all this drag racing yeah. uh, on, on city streets. And, and in some cases, they are causing accidents. In some cases, they are involved in accidents. That's an interesting question. Uh, if someone is involved in an illegal activity and they hurt themselves or they are hurt, if they're involved in drag racing and they get hurt in, in, in the process of drag racing, do they actually have a claim, uh, a claim that they can make <laughs> uh, uh, in, in the court system that the court system will recognize? Not that I've ever seen. Uh, generally, in uh, a person's policy, insurance policy, they'll actually have certain things, certain criteria. If you are the one that is at fault, you can't then bring a claim against yourself in most cases. And so, I, I, not that I've seen, maybe there's some obscure law that will allow certain things like that, but not that I have seen. If you and I are drag racing, and, and you and I both know that drag racing is against the law, mm -hmm. and I cut you off in the drag race and cause you to have an accident where you are injured, uh, do you have a claim against me? Uh, uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just curious. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying I to understand, understand how, how this works. <laughs> I would say no, I, uh, but I will say also, we're in an environment where you know I've, I've heard this saying that you can you can indict a a ham sandwich, yeah. and so people can sue for whatever they want to. The question becomes whether or not they'll be able to recover, and I don't see an avenue to recover on something like that when you both were actually, um, I guess involved in some illegal activity and then one person get hurt as a result of the legal ac illegal activity mm -hmm. i don't see an, an avenue for that particular person to recover i saw in in your bio that you uh have served uh interned on both sides of uh, uh, <clears throat> of the criminal uh, uh court system yes you've served as a prosecutor and as a defense attorney and currently, we actually, um, our office has contracts with the um, public defender's office around the state to, to uh, represent some indigent clients. Okay. From your perspective, uh, which do you prefer, the prosecutor uh, side of, of criminal law or the defender, the, the defendant side of criminal law? Both sides carry, I guess, some difficulties and some, you know, some likes and dislikes. However, I prefer personally the defense side because I, I'm the one that feels as if, you know, my community when I was growing up, you know, I didn't know any African-American attorneys. And I know that, you know, I've had relatives in and out of the jail system. And I feel as if I need to be a voice for them. And that's the reason why I prefer it. And also, I just feel as if, you know, the criminal defense side, it requires more creativity. And I just, I think that God has gifted me with the, the, the way to see things that some people can't see it that way. I have friends of mine who are uh, attorneys 
my sister is an attorney. Okay. And uh, one of the things that I hear a lot is that the resources, the financial resources uh, for indigent defense simply aren't there. That's that, absolutely correct. That, that, that prosecutors have way more resources uh, to execute a, prosec a, a prosecution than defense uh, attorneys have at their disposal to execute a proper defense. How do we balance that scale off? I imagine it, 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 it's a matter of, of legislature, state yes. or local or, or parish, but what, from your vantage point as an attorney, what do you see being done and what should be done that's not being done to give more balance to that? Well, I think mostly it, it, we have to have more resources, financial resources that's dedicated by the, the state of Louisiana. Um, I know that the district attorney's office, they, they, they're able to pull from multiple streams of income. However, we cannot. They're even able to create streams of income Correct. where there aren't any. You're absolutely uh, correct. And, and that doesn't seem quite fair yeah. to, to me. Yes. Uh, uh, I, I, I had an attorney in here not too long ago uh, who's currently seeking a judgeship. Mm -hmm. And I asked the question uh, about uh, the potential ruin of a person's life before they ever get to trial. Yes. If you are arrested and you are indigent and you go into a bail system mm -hmm. uh, and you don't have the funds or the resources in order to pay bail, even though you have been charged but not convicted of anything, your life is essentially ruined. Yeah, because you're going to be held in jail for a protracted period of time. And then any job and, that and you may have had is gone. Correct. Any your relationships house, yes. with your family are gone. Yes. Uh, so we are turning out people uh, uh, in a system that does not allow for the kind of equity that I believe a, a, a civilized society should have. I understand that, that the law says that you're innocent until proven guilty. I understand that law enforcement has a responsibility to arrest those who they believe are guilty of, of crimes. But I also understand that, that not everyone who's arrested is actually guilty of the crime that they have committed. And a system needs to be in place, from my way of thinking, that allows for this person uh, to maintain uh, uh, his family and to maintain his, mm -hmm. his life uh, until such time as uh, he can appear in a court and either prove his innocence or be found guilty. Yeah. And, I completely and, agree with you. So, so, so as a lawyer, and, and I imagine that, that you guys have the opportunity in, in, in your uh, groups to sit down and talk about these kinds of things, is there any effort being made collaboratively among lawyers uh, to to try to bring about more equity in the prosecution of, 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 of these cases? Well, I will say that I know that through the the Indigent Defense Board, mm -hmm. what they have going on, we have like a, a group email that everyone is a part of when we are talking about different legislation that are coming down the line. We're talking about how we can actually promote um, uh, different laws that we could put you know that we want to uh that we want to have changed and so from that perspective I, if i'm not mistaken they have the energy defense board has a um um uh, they have a group that actually talks to certain legislators and so i think that's the route that they take you know to try to get some of this resolved and try to make some of this more i guess more equitable however i will say that I know people say that the uh, person is innocent to proving guilty. Mm -hmm. Honestly, I don't really believe that. Um, and, really? And I, and I hate to say that. Okay. I don't think that they're innocent as far as the judicial system goes. Okay. I don't think they treat them as if they're innocent until proven guilty. The problem that I have with that is that if I am actually innocent, why do I need a bail amount at all? Mm -hmm. Because if, if, if you're saying that you can it, in essence you're saying that if i go out to walmart the any particular person that i see there 
if I ask them did they commit a murder and they say no, we have to treat them exactly like uh, the person that we are treating the person that is in front of the court. Mm-hmm. So if this if this particular person or you as the pastor, if 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 there is an opportunity for, I guess, you to go to to uh, to court and then say that you're not guilty. And if you are actually not guilty of something, why should you have to pay anything to get out of jail? Mm-hmm. I feel as if there should not be a bail amount that is required for anyone because, quite honestly, if you committed a crime once, then a bail is not going to prevent you from committing a crime a, a, the second time. And so I think, you know, maybe the better route may be some sort of monitoring. Monitoring may be a better option than to actually say, okay, well, you need to pay this $100,000. You need to pay, get, find the bail bondsman, get them to pay 12 to 13 to 15% of that because that's not going to prevent you from a particular person from doing any other crimes in the future just because you make them pay a particular amount of money. I want to be clear with what you just said. Okay. You said that you don't believe that people are innocent until proven guilty. You well, meant that in the sight of the law. Correct. That, not that, 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 yeah. while, that while they, <laughs> they say that, yes. that's not the way that they that's, treat people. That's absolutely correct. Okay. I, I just wanted to, wanted be, to make sure we're clear. <laughs> yeah, I got you. I understand. Yeah, I, I sat up when I heard, <laughs> when I heard that. Uh, uh, and then you, you, you made mention of, of ankle monitors or bracelets or uh, arm bracelets uh, as opposed to bail. Correct. Uh, does not the court use bracelets in some cases? Yes, they use that, but they also require bail in most co- cases also on top of that. Okay. And so if you know where the person is, then why require bail on top of ankle monitoring? Mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying I feel as if it's, it's, it's redundant, and I feel as if, even though they quote unquote mean well, I don't think that that's the uh, the, the proper avenue to take to require bail and ankle monitoring. Okay, so you, you, your experience has been both as prosecutor and as uh, defense in criminal matters, but the focus of your practice is in civil litigation. Is that well, correct? Majority of what I do is civil litigation. However. I do do criminal also. Okay. Um, well, break down for me the pluses and minuses of your preference between civil and criminal. Hmm. The biggest difference, I think, is you're not dealing with a person's life. It's one thing when you're dealing with money. In a lot of cases, people can get money back. Mm -hmm. But the thing that keeps me up at night is that client that I receive and I'm working tirelessly for and they could potentially go to jail for the rest of their life. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel as if my heart is in that field, even though I love the civil side. I feel like there is a mandate that I actually do something to try to help the people that can't help themselves on the other side, on the criminal side. Your practice is in the 19th JDC, is that correct? One of my uh, offices yeah, is in here, you yes. Have an, you do have another office, but but your primary practice is in yes, the 19th JDC. that's correct. 19th JDC it has majority black judges. Yes. Uh, uh, do you see that as a positive? Uh, given that the people that they deal with for the most part are black people? I do. And and the reason why I feel that way is because there are certain experiences that people that are African-American or whatever uh, nationality they are or race they are, there are certain things growing up they understand that you don't have to tell them. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I've, I've known that people, they'll lie about things because it's, it, the truth doesn't sound like the truth to people outside of their community. And so I'm having to then pry the truth out of my client and try to fashion it in a way 
that is, I guess, another community can understand mm-hmm. because a lot of it is things that is normal to African Americans. And I think the idea that we have judges now that can potentially see the same thing this client is seeing, it actually at least gives them a better opportunity to express themselves, and also it gives them a better opportunity to uh, be able to tell exactly what happened and then the judge not throw them away because they don't understand it because that's not what they grew up in. On the criminal end, are most of your cases uh, judge cases or are they jury cases? As far as the uh, trials? Yes. Most of the trials are going to be jury trials. Okay. So then... Help me to understand what a jury of your peers means. Well, in, in in reality, not not, the not what they see it is. Yeah. What 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 does a jury of your peers mean? I found that a jury of the your peers are just people that lives in your community. And when I say your community, I'm talking about the people that live in your city. A lot of times, and, and this is one thing that I I, I hate to see. When I go to when I go through uh, the jury selection process, mm-hmm. a lot of African Americans we 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 try our best to get out of it, and so now it now we may have an African American on trial for for rape or for for whatever crime, mm-hmm. and then now I can't present it the same way to another group of people as I would to the African-Americans because they would understand it. Well, that's what sparked my question uh, when you said you have to craft uh, the information in such a way that uh, people can understand it. Correct. So, jury of your peers, I'm a 61-year-old African-American. I would like to believe that a jury of my peers is majority African-American people. Yes, around your age. Is that... Is that likely to happen? No. I've never seen it happen that way. Um, in most cases, it's the people that actually shows up to uh, for jury duty. And those people, a lot of times, we have to also consider the fact that when we're talking about African Americans, especially people, let's say if I have a 25-year-old that is going on trial for murder, mm-hmm. the question becomes... Um, Will that 25-year-old person get a jury of their peers, and which their peers are going to be somewhere between 20 and 30 years old, Mm African-American, generally males? That hardly ever happens. And then when we get those people, there's all in, I don't want to say always, but many times there are excuses to reason why they can't be there or they can't do it. They can't, you know, and and I understand some of them, Mm -hmm. you know, Especially if you are you having to work. Hey, I have to work. I have children and all that. However, the issue is I need someone that is the peer of this individual because mm-hmm. you can understand a way that another, even another African-American in their six or seven, they may not understand exactly what you're going through at this particular time. And so it's very difficult to get a jury of a person's peers, especially when they're African-Americans. So would you say, would you agree that uh, it is as important for African-Americans to uh, avail themselves to jury duty as it is that African-Americans advocate for uh, changes in the criminal justice system, changes in law enforcement practices, changes in uh, the way that the parish prison is being maintained? We, We emphasize a lot of things. Mm-hmm. I have yet to hear anybody emphasize the importance of actually showing up for jury duty, for, for jury duty, and, mm-hmm. and and potentially being placed on a jury uh, in order to make decisions that affect uh, people's lives. You're absolutely correct. I would say that these are equally um, um, important things. Uh, of course, you need to petition your legislators. You need to do all that. We need to vote. Uh, you know. We need to actually be on these juries, and we need to really try to, if at all possible, um, prepare beforehand Mm -hmm. so that you can actually be on the jury versus you having a 
you know, you having to be excused because you have certain things you need to take care of as far as family goes. And I understand things happen. A lot of us, you know, we don't have a whole lot. And when we don't have a whole lot, we may not have people that can help us. Uh, some of the, a lot of the people that I see in the juries, a lot of times, you know, they already have, uh, they may not even be working. They may be, uh, uh, my husband is doing the working and I'm, I'm taking care of the kids, but now the kids are older. So now I can do jury duty. I see those type of people. And generally, from my experience, they are generally Caucasians. And so we don't necessarily have the benefit of having that, I guess, that, that flexibility. Mm -hmm. And so I would just implore us to push to try to be on some of these juries, especially when we're talking about people that look like us, because we, we, we know things that the other races may not know about our people because our experiences are totally different. You mentioned the need to vote. Uh, statewide elections are coming up in October. Uh, uh, from what I understand, if you are held in parish prison, whether it be in East Baton Rouge Parish or anywhere else, but you have not been convicted of a crime, you have a right to vote, even though you're being held. Uh, is anyone, to your knowledge, advocating for these people to be able to exercise their right to vote? And I'm asking the question, fairly ignorant of what the answer may, might mm -hmm. be, uh, is something going on uh, that sheriffs who, who, who pretty much run uh, the, the, the parish uh, system, mm -hmm. uh, are, are sheriffs making it possible for non-convicted uh, but incarcerated people uh, to vote? Are, are, are they bringing voting machines into, into parish prison? Yeah, for not them that, to vote. Not that I've heard of. Um, I will say that I may not be the... the the, I guess the best person to answer that type of question, mm -hmm. but I, I, I really do not know concerning that. Seems like there's a whole lot of folk that it could seems, be voting. Yes, because they had that actually been convicted, not being and they're being held. Opportunity to yes, vote. you're absolutely correct. You engage in something in your practice called Free Legal Saturdays. Yes. T t tell me about Free Legal Saturdays. What we do here is. I used to, one of my internships years ago, maybe around 10 years ago, was with the Baton Rouge Bar Association. Okay. And so with them, what we used to have is uh, free legal advice days. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what I have done here is incorporated that into my office because I understand that with the Baton Rouge Bar Association, there are certain things that they cannot, I guess, give a person legal advice on because what happens is they generally have an event with I think St. Vincent de Paul. And what they'll do is they'll have an opportunity for a person to come in and um, speak with attorneys. I think it's called Thirst for Justice, or at least it was when I was doing it years ago. And so they had an opportunity for a person to come in and talk to an attorney about issues that they may have. But there was, there was a limitation on what they could talk to an attorney about. Uh, I'm not sure if it was based on their insurance or, you know, or what, but what I try to do is try to take it uh, um, a little bit further okay. and set it up where they can talk to us about just about anything that they have a question about. And what we do here is to ensure that we are prepared for those type of clients. And it's generally the indigent that they can't actually afford uh, to pay three, $400 an hour for legal advice. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what we do is set out a Saturday, generally one Saturday every month to do it. Uh, but what we do is if they call our office, or go online and sign up for the, the free legal Saturday, what we'll do is ask them to fill out a form. What type of question are you asking? What, are, what is your issue that you're dealing with? And so we can be prepared, even if it's an area of law that we do not necessarily practice in. Uh, I have a, a, a plethora of, 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 of people that we can contact to try to make sure that we are prepared for this particular person when they come in. What are the questions that you get most often? It's generally mostly dealing with um, family issues, um, if, uh, you know, about divorces. Um, we have questions about business entities. Um, how do I create this? I want to start this business. Um, how do I 
prepare certain documents. And so we help them with that, and we actually have an attorney on staff that actually does mostly what he does is the personal injury side and also um, the business side because we actually have certain, um, what do you call it, the, um, it's a, um, we have a, a program mm-hmm. that people can sign up for, and what that program does, it allows us to, instead of you having to pay this huge retainer, five dollars $6,000, it allows us to give you a limited amount of service. This is a subscription service, and we may give you three hours of legal advice or preparing of the documents for you for only $200 a month. And so we do things like that for small businesses so they can get off a, get a you know, get off the ground mm-hmm. and try to build because we want to promote entrepreneurship. And, you know, that's the way we've decided to do that. What do you think, uh, you mentioned entrepreneurship. What do you think is, uh, I, I was reading something the other day that said that entrepreneurship in this state is uh, gaining at a rate higher than other places in the country. But when you're farther behind, from everybody else, yes. uh, any gain is is seen as as being spectacular. Uh, what do you think uh, is the biggest hindrance to successful entrepreneurship uh, within the African American community, within the Black community? I have my answer, but I'm, I'm curious as to what yours <laughs> is. I think it may be fear, fear of losing it all. Um, okay. And, when, and, th- and that is a legitimate fear. I, I, I'm sure it is. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I guess I grew up in an environment where there wasn't anything there anyway or there, there wasn't much. Mm-hmm. And so there's just, I guess there was just something in me that I felt as if I have to do this. I have to not only build something for my family, but mm-hmm. I want to build something so I can change the economy of other people. Mm-hmm. And so, but I think I will say that it's not easy. Entrepreneurship is not easy, right? Um, but I think a lot of what's holding people back a lot of time is fear, and then a lot of African Americans not, I guess, make sure I say this the right way, supporting one another. Okay. And I think you know that may be the reason. So what do you think? I think it's money. <laughs> I, I I think it's a lack of uh, of money, resources. Yeah, I I, I think that. Uh, still in the year of our Lord, 2023, uh, resources are not as readily available to black entrepreneurs as they are to whites. Mm. Uh, whites have pools of resources that they can go to, uh, uh, family members, generational wealth, uh, yeah. stocks, bonds, things of that sort, uh, whereas blacks have to develop a financial plan submit it to a bank and hope that the lender that they're submitting the plan to is open-minded to the possibility of this being successful and and giving them the money that they need to start. Almost always, they're given less than what they asked for yeah. uh, because uh, they're, they're considered to be a risk yeah. uh, in ways that their white counterparts are not. So for me, the answer is always... Uh, first and foremost, money and, and, and the lack of resources. And by the time you get the resources uh, to do what you have to do, others are already doing it, and, and your father... You know, you, yeah. it, it doesn't matter if you're first, if you don't have the resources within which to do it. Now, I do agree with you that uh, sometimes there is a lack of support that exists within the black community, but here's the other problem with that. We can't get whites to support our businesses. Uh, uh, A handful of restaurant entrepreneurs can get a few whites to come in and buy breakfast a couple of days a week or buy lunch a couple of days a week. But when it comes to uh, uh, things like this, Mad Game Entertainment is 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 run by a man named Terrence Turner who's sitting behind the camera, and 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 it's his business. Uh, he has to work very hard to get whites. 
to patronize the services that he provides as opposed to blacks uh, patronizing that business. Whereas blacks will patronize uh, whites, will patronize Hispanics, will patronize Asians, uh, but we only have one pool to draw from. It's the same problem that exists within the black church. Uh, we, we, we have a shrinking pool of, uh, uh, of resources to deal, to, to draw from, because primarily uh, it's only blacks who attend African-American-led mm -hmm. churches. Uh, and, 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 and more of us, that, well, I shouldn't say more, but there's a, there's a constant 15% of black people who will go to churches led by whites. But there's not a corresponding 15% of whites that will go to churches led by blacks. I doubt if there's 3% yeah. of, of churches that way. So I do think that patronage is important, but I think the number one issue is money, yeah. not, 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 not necessarily patronage. Uh, and, and it has nothing to do with uh, organizational ability. It has nothing to do with talent. It has to do with opportunity, and money creates opportunity in a capitalistic society. And, and where the money does not exist, then uh, uh, the businesses go away. Yeah. And I, I completely agree with you. Uh, it's, I see exactly what you're saying. However, I guess I was just looking at it from the perspective of outside of money. But of course, I guess money, of course, is the, the starting point but I, I agree with what you're saying also. There are four law schools in the state of Louisiana, uh, two in New Orleans, two in Baton Rouge. Uh, consequently, people like yourself. For who, right who, now. Who, for right now. Pe people who come from North Louisiana, Shreveport, Monroe, Alexandria, uh, they, they have to come this way uh, in order to go to law school. Would you like to see a law school set up in North Louisiana? Yes, absolutely. And if I'm not mistaken, I think I read something that Southern was attempting to do that. And so um, I would love They're to see that. They're going to satellite their law school to... Yes, to okay. Shreveport, if I'm not okay. mistaken. Okay. And so I, was, I would absolutely love that. I think that it's needed because I will say that it's, it's almost congested here. When you're talking about four law schools, in a lot of cases, people stay where they built mm -hmm. their, their, and so um, I think it's important that we have maybe a law school in um, Monroe and maybe one in Shreveport. Mm -hmm. um, you, you, you kind of answered the question that I'm gonna ask you next. Uh, but I asked the, other, the last two attorneys that I had in here, so, and they, they each gave different answers, okay. which I find interesting, so I'll be curious <laughs> as to what your answer is. Do you think that there are too many lawyers in Louisiana, you're out there Too every day, many lawyers. And, and 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 you're an entrepreneur. You you have your own shingle, and so you have to kill what you eat. Yes, correct. So, from 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 your vantage point, do you think that Louisiana is saturated with lawyers? I don't think so. Um, of course, I would. Ideally, for me, it would maybe be better if there were less competition. Mm -hmm. However, I, I, don't, I, I never get in the way of another person's dream, and I feel as if whatever is for me, I'll receive. And so I feel as if, if, uh, if, uh, if another person has worked hard and they have passed the bar, which I don't really agree with, the bar, but if they've passed the bar, I, I think they should be able to, to attempt to try and take care of their family based on the skills that they've attained. When you say you don't believe in the bar. People ask me about this help, all the time. Help me understand that. <laughs> I, I believe in the bar, but I don't believe in the bar exam. Okay. I feel like the bar exam is, I think it's a waste of time, quite honestly. I think it, we will be much better served if we were to have Similar to like doctors have, you know, we have a residency. They have the, when you finish law school, you have to work for another law firm for three years or so, get the experience from there, and then be able to move out, move into your own practice. I'm fine with that, but the idea that you have to take a test, a a, a week long test, and 
a lot of it is based on memorizing things, which mm -hmm. in most cases you are not going to have to memorize when you are practicing because the book is right on the desk with you. I just don't think that that's the right route. But now you, you, you use doctors as, as an example. Isn't there such a thing as a board-certified physician? And yes. in order to become board-certified, don't you have to pass tests? And is there not a distinction between a board-certified physician and a non-board-certified phys physician? That's absolutely correct. Okay. Don't we believe that board-certified physicians uh, have a higher degree of knowledge and expertise than non-board certified physicians. And again, I'm asking purely out of, out of ignorance. I'm, yeah. I'm not a doctor, so I don't know. I'm, I'm asking. And, and I'm not a doctor either, of course. But as far as, I guess, people assume that they are, I guess, more knowledgeable. Um, they're getting a better doctor if the doctor is board certified. However, I'm not sure whether or not um, what are, the, I guess, the criteria for you to be a board certified versus not being a board certified doctor? So I'm not 100% sure on that. So you're comfortable with a person having graduated from a law school, mm -hmm. uh, practicing the law, absent uh, a, a bar exam, passing the bar exam, equivalent to a paralegal? Would, would, would that be the equivalence of, of what you're no, describing? No, what I'm saying is I feel that a person would get much more uh, experience and knowledge from actually working under a experienced attorney than they would taking an exam. An internship, an, an apprenticeship. Correct, where, and where, having to where, go to court. Where they committed to a certain number of years working with a seasoned attorney before they were allowed to uh, go off on their own? Correct, that's what I believe in. Um, because I, I've i seen many attorneys, and, and my, uh, not just many, myself, when I passed the bar exam, I still didn't know how to practice. And so I had to get under the tutelage of older and more experienced attorneys. Mm -hmm. And I got more from that than I got from actually studying for the bar exam and memorizing a lot of the information and then passing it. Mm -hmm. And so I think that we would be better served by having younger attorneys or younger people that just passed, I mean, that has just finished law school to serve as apprenticeships for maybe two to three years under another actual attorney. And so we'll, they know what they're doing before they get out. Are you a person of faith? Yes, I am. How does your faith uh, influence the way that you practice law? How does my faith influence it? Well, I feel as if everybody deserves an opportunity. I, I, I feel as if we've all done things and we've all come short. And so I think that it is important to me to not throw people away because of a decision that they've made, especially in their youth. Mm -hmm. And I think my faith requires that I give people chances that other people may not give them. Do you believe that uh, your faith adds to the level of intensity that you approach certain cases uh, because you feel like there's a lack of compassion or a lack of mercy or, or a lack of understanding of the details of a certain circumstance as opposed to others? Well, I don't know that that's my faith. Um, I actually do that. However, I don't know if it's because of my faith or it's just that this is what's in me mm -hmm. uh, because I know that there are I think my experiences have taught me much more along those lines, and I'm willing to bend over backwards, give everything that I have for a person based on things that I've seen throughout my life. Uh, but I think my faith keeps me going when I don't feel like going anymore. You have children? I do. I have one son. How old is he? 
19. Oh, okay. He, he's almost out of the house if he's not oh, out he's of the house. Oh, well, <laughs> <laughs> well, he's in college. Okay. And he's moved back into the house to actually, instead of living on campus, he's not going to be living on campus. He's going to be living with us, but still going to college. Where's he going to school? He's going to LSU now. Going to LSU. Yeah. He was, you know he was at Xavier. Do you, do you know what he's majoring in or what he wants to major in? He just chose. Because at that age, they don't always exactly. know what they want to do. Because I, maj- I majored in theater initially, so okay. I, it happens. Um, I think my wife told me the other day that he changed his major, but I'm not sure what she told me he changed okay. it to. I ask this question of people with children. Uh, usually they're younger than, than yours, but uh, I'm always concerned about what I call, what others call, the brain drain that happens here in Louisiana and particularly in Baton Rouge. Uh, people are raised in this community, people receive their education in this community, but they leave this community and go to other places when they start uh, on their careers. Do you have an interest, as, as a person who lives in this community, uh, exchanges ideas and works with people in this community, do you have any preferences with regard to whether or not your son plants his flag in Baton Rouge or plants his flag somewhere. I know it's his decision. Mm-hmm. I'm not asking you to make a decision for him. I'm just asking what, what your preference is. I prefer that he go out and try to, I guess, attain something on his own without being under, I guess, my umbrella. Because I can reach him now. I can help him if he falls right now. However, I feel that that there's just, well, what worked for me was that when you feel as if nobody's there to pick you up, then you stand up on your own. Mm-hmm. And so I think I, I don't want to prevent him from having that opportunity to do that. However, if he decides to stay is one thing, but I think it's more beneficial to him, especially as an African-American man, a man to understand that Mom and dad is not always going to be there for you. And so you need to be able to pick yourself up and then let us know about the problem after you've solved it versus trying to come to us and let us solve it for you. Okay. Mr. Willie Stevens, Jr., thank you so much for taking the time to come and share with us, and I wish you great success down the road. I sure appreciate come it. Come by and see us at Shallow sometime. We'd love to have you here. I sure will. All right. I sure will. Thank you for viewing. Thank you for listening. We'll be back again next time.